want to invite you to open your Bibles. I trust that you have uh, your Bible with you. Uh, open your Bible, if you have one, to uh, Revelation chapter 2. We're continuing a series that we began three weeks ago. We've, we've spent two Sundays in uh, the book of Revelation thus far. Um, last week I was away, and so we returned to it for the third time uh, this morning. I want to begin this morning with a story uh, from my life. In the fall of 1996, I was at the time living in, uh, in Abbotsford, British Columbia, serving at a church as a youth pastor, and, and I was dating a young woman by the name of Chrisline Nickel. I'd actually met her about two years earlier, but it's, it's a longer story. We, uh, we didn't uh, click, you could say, for a while. But, but by this point, the fall of 96, we were, we were dating. I had, I had expressed to her my desire to pursue a relationship with her uh, with the, the end goal of marriage, and uh, she was good with that. And so we were falling in love with one another, uh, dating, getting to know one another uh, that fall. I remember one particular evening, I think it was a Thursday night, I had hosted our senior youth group at the church, and a uh, youth group was over, and, uh, and it was probably wrapped up around 10 o'clock, and uh, I was missing Chrisline. She was at the time out in Vancouver studying her education degree at UBC, and so I decided that I would take a trip out to surprise her. I wanted to see her, I wanted to be with her, and so I got into my old uh, 1974 two-tone orange and rust Chevy Nova, and I drove out to the university endowment lands where Chrisline was living in the basement of uh, an aunt and uncle's house in this fairly affluent neighborhood. Now, I, I parked out in the street, and I went and knocked on her door. Her aunt and uncle were actually out of, uh, of the country on a holiday. I knocked on the basement door. The lights were all off, and Chrisline didn't answer. She wasn't home. So I thought, well, I'll go back and sit in my car for a while and wait for her to get back. I went and sat in my car for a while, and I suppose I looked a little suspicious in this old jalopy in a fairly affluent neighborhood. I, at the time, I had a, a, a ponytail and, and uh, looked a little bit scary or, or uh, suspicious, I suppose. And so as I sat there for a while, an hour or so, a police officer drove up behind me. It's about midnight at this time, and, and I got grilled with questions about what I was doing. I explained, and uh, I found out later on that that, that uh, police officer was, in fact, Chrisline's cousin, didn't know it at the time. Um, Anyways, I waited for a while more. I knocked on the door several times to see if she had snuck in somehow, and I'd missed her and ended up being disappointed. I didn't see her. By, by the way, some of you young people are going like, why didn't you just text her? We didn't have cell phones back then. And so uh, uh, probably around 1 in the morning, I decided that, uh, that my, my mission was going to be remain a failure, and I got back in, uh, on the road, and I drove home to Abbotsford, only to discover later that Chrisline had been feeling the same way. She had actually traveled from Vancouver to Abbotsford uh, that night uh, to see me. First love. Do you remember, many of you, I'm sure, could could tell stories that would be different in lots of the particulars, but similar as far as the gist of it. You, you remember the things you did when you were first in love. First love, that, that's the, the central uh, issue in the text that we're going to look at today. Uh, Jesus is going to speak to the church in Ephesus. He has a message for them, and, and he's going to speak to the issue of their first love. Now, several weeks ago, as I mentioned, we began this series uh, walking through the book of Revelation. I just want to remind you of a few things, and for those who are just joining us today, help bring you a little bit up to speed, though you might feel a little lost, but here, let me get you up to speed. First, I highlighted the fact that uh, this book is a rather strange book. If you've read 
the Revelation, the last book in the New Testament. It's filled with imagery and numbers, angels and dragons, beasts and bulls, trumpets and thunder. And as we, as we move into it, it probably seems very strange and unknown. And, and I said that despite that, if we uh, do the hard work of becoming careful readers, uh, we will be able to, uh, though we will ha- there will remain some puzzling elements, we will be able to discern and hear the central message of this book uh, that that. We just need to, to, uh, to think carefully as we dive in. And so we're going to unpack that and we will discover uh, the message of this book. Uh, second, critical to our understanding, we need to understand what it is. And it is, uh, the title of it is the Apocalypse, Revelation, literally. Uh, the Greek word is apocalypse. And it means an unveiling, uh, a pulling back of the covers, disclosure. Uh, think pulling back curtains, lifting off a cover. Uh, the goal of Revelation, of uh, this apocalypse, is to show us what is really real. Uh, it is is God's desire through this book that we would see the present in light of the future and that we would see the present in light of the unseen realities of the present. The apocalypse is this unveiling, the pulling back of the, co- uh, of the curtains, if you will. Uh, third, I explored genre a little bit and said that this apocalypse, it is uh, it is a unique combination of three genres, three kinds of literature. It is apocalyptic, which is a, a kind of literature that flourished for about four centuries from 200 B.C. to 200 A.D. And it, it used imagery, it used numbers, so there is something... Uh, that we can recognize this, this had something in common with other, other apocalypses of the day, if you will. It, it was a form, a genre of literature, but it is also a word of prophecy. By its own admission in chapter 1, the words of this prophecy, that it is, it is a declaration of God's truth to God's people, and it is a letter. Uh, and so we've explored that. It's a unique combination of these three things. Now, we're turning today to the first of seven, uh, what are called seven letters in the book of Revelation. Each of these letters are from Jesus, whom John just received a vision of the glorified Jesus, to seven churches. Now, in the last part of chapter 1, John hears a voice like a trumpet behind him that says, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches. Jesus speaks. John turns to see the voice. He sees Jesus, and Jesus gives him these messages, these oracles, for seven churches. And so we turn to the first one today uh, in Revelation 2, verses 1 to 7. If you have a Bible, I invite you to follow along as I read it. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people and that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God." Uh, This morning, as we explore this first letter, 
of the seven letters of the Revelation. I, I want to do uh, and several things with you. First, I want to share with you a few general observations about these letters as a group, all seven of them. Uh, second, I want to highlight for you some of what we know about the city of Ephesus that is important and helpful as we seek to understand what's going on here and throughout the Revelation. Uh, third, I want to focus our attention on some things that we know about the church of Ephesus, both from Scripture more broadly and also specifically from Jesus' words of commendation in this letter. Fourth, we'll shift our focus to Jesus' words of correction and warning. And then lastly, I want to conclude by uh, thinking through with you the implications of this letter for us. So first, some general observations. Uh, the seven letters to the, to the seven churches here are, are best understood not as regular letters. And I say that for several reasons. One, each is exceptionally short, um, so they're more like an oracle or a message to each church than, than a true letter. Um, but more than that, none of them stand alone. What we need to understand is that John didn't write each of these seven letters on a separate parchment or a separate scroll and send one off to each church. No, these seven letters uh, stand together as part of the, the beginning part of the Revelation, and they went uh, together as a group, all seven messages, seven letters, along with the rest of the Revelation, to each church in turn. It would have gone there, and they would have likely made a copy of it, and then they would have sent it on to the next church where it would have been again copied out and shared in that context. So all seven work together. Uh, they were to be read together by all the churches. In fact, very clearly our text indicates that. We read this towards the end of each of these uh, letters, these words, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And it's plural, we can't miss that. So though addressed specifically to each church for some particular reasons, nonetheless, each message is intended for all the other churches as well. Now, it leads us to a second observation or a second question. Why these seven churches and why only seven churches? Uh, there were other churches in the province of Asia. Church at Colossae, at Lystra, Derby, Miletus, to know a few, to just name a few. There are other churches. So why only seven and why these seven? Well, the answer is found simply in the fact that the number seven is significant. For John and in the ancient world, the number seven... Uh, it carries with it the, the sense of completeness or fullness. If you look back at chapter 1, we, we, I didn't mention anything about this, but in, in chapter 1 of Revelation, verse 4, we read this. Uh, Grace and peace to you from him who is, who was, and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ. And I would contend that that is clearly Trinitarian language. The one who is, who was, and who is to come, that's the Father, and then Jesus at the end from Jesus Christ, and the seven spirits before the throne is a reference to the Holy Spirit. Now, seven spirits, are there seven Holy Spirits? No, of course not. It's speaking, it's a way in the revelation of simply speaking of the fullness, the completeness of the ministry, the presence, the work of the Spirit. That is a Trinitarian language, Father, Spirit, and Son. And so seven speaks to fullness. And so in addressing seven churches, yes, Jesus is addressing these specific seven churches and some of the particularities in each of their lives, but more than that, he is addressing all churches. He's addressing churches no matter where they're located, the fullness of all churches, the complete church, the church global at every point in history. And so what, what that means, of course, is that what Jesus says to these seven churches, Jesus says to us today, here at sunrise. He speaks these words to the church global throughout history. 
Third observation that follows is, is that we are called to listen. We are called to hear what the Spirit says. As I already read, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Eugene Peterson says this, listening, to the, listening is the common task of the church. Churches are listening posts. We are to listen to the voice of the Spirit. The Spirit speaks, the church listens. Now this, of course, is a call not simply for an auditory experience, that is, just simply to hear, but to hear and respond. If you remember in Revelation 1, the, the beatitude, the blessing, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take it to heart, that is, who, who keep it, literally who obey it, who hear and respond with obedience. That's what we're called to do. So we are called to hear and obey. Fourth observation concerns how each of these letters begins. Uh, Maybe a little odd. It says, each of these says, to the angel of the church in, and then lists whatever location. So the angel of the church in Ephesus, the angel of the church in Smyrna, the angel of the church in Pergamum. What are we to make of that? What does that mean? There's a number of options that are proposed, but I want to simply, uh, for the sake of time, say, well, I'll mention them really quickly. Some people say the word translated angel uh, can be translated as messenger. And so uh, some people say, well, it's, it's a message to the, the preaching pastor in each church. Others contend that this is something speaking of the ethos or the corporate personality of each church. I would suggest that simply uh, the, the preferred answer is simply that angel means angel. I mean, throughout the Revelation, we're going to encounter this uh, same word, I think, 67 times, generally speaking, or each time speaking of a supernatural being, uh, generally a heavenly being, not in every case, but angel means angel. Now, that still leaves us with some questions. What does it mean for, for Jesus to address these letters to the angel of the church in Ephesus or the angel of the church somewhere else? Well, here I would simply say, and we can look to the book of Daniel where, where uh, we, we read about God's assignment of guardian angels, if you will, over nations or over people groups. And I would simply say that in some way that we are not going to fully understand, uh, there is an angel uh, perhaps connected with each church. And that angel's responsibility here is, is to make sure that the message is told. Daryl Johnson says this, uh, that, that that angel that, who somehow makes sure that the human messenger speaks the word accurately and faithfully. So it, it, ultimately, these messages are to the church. That's clear. And so uh, we'll leave that at that. A fifth and final observation I want to make, and this just briefly, is that each letter follows a similar pattern. That should already be, be uh, quite clear to us. Each ad- is addressed, begins being addressed to the angel of the church in whatever locality that church is. In each, the description of Jesus that follows that uh, comes from John's vision in chapter 1 of Jesus, with the exception of the final letter. But otherwise, every time we read the description of Jesus in each letter, it will come directly from that vision that John had in the text we looked at two weeks ago. Uh, Next, each letter, with the exception of two, uh, includes some positive commendation or affirmation of the church. Uh, Next, each church, with the exception of just two, include a word of rebuke of each church. And then there's this call that I've already talked about. Whoever has ears, let them hear. And then lastly, each each concludes with a promise. Uh, The order is sometimes changed in a few of these, but there's a promise to the one who is victorious. That basic order, those elements follow through consistently. And so we will recognize that, and I'll draw your attention to it, as is uh, relevant and helpful to us in future weeks. So let's turn from the the letters generally uh, to the city of Ephesus uh, itself. It makes perfect sense uh, for a number of reasons that Ephesus heads this group of seven churches. Uh, first, 
it is a city that is just geographically closest to the island of Patmos, uh, which is where John is, is located, from which he is writing and sending this letter. It's about 60 miles from uh, Patmos, where John is, to Ephesus. Ephesus uh, sat on the, uh, the, the, at the mouth of the Castor River, uh, 60 miles from, Cast, uh, from Patmos. It, it was also at the juncture of three major trade routes. Uh, it would have been the first stop of the normal postal route. And, and what I mean by that is they didn't have postal services like us, but that letter would have gone from Patmos to Ephesus. And then if you look on a map at these seven churches, you'll see that they, they are just in a, in, a, in a row, in a circle, and you can follow from one to the next. Ephesus to Smyrna to Pergamum to Thyatira to Sardis to Philadelphia and then Laodicea. They're all in a big circuit. And so that's how the letter would have been delivered and passed on from church to church. Now, Ephesus though not the capital of the province of Asia, was an incredibly important city in the province of Asia and in the, the empire of Rome. Uh, a major financial and commercial center. It was the most important uh, seaport on the west coast of the Aegean Sea, on the west coast of Asia, on the Aegean Sea. It was also the host site for the Pan-Ionian Games, which, uh, as an athletic event in the Roman world, was second only to the Olympics that were hosted in Athens. Ephesus had an amphitheater that seated 24,000 people. Just to help us think about that for a second, Rogers Place here in Edmonton seats under 19,000. So this is a huge stadium. Uh, the population of Ephesus uh, was about a quarter of a million people. It was in the city of Ephesus, was also the home of the worship of the goddess uh, Artemis, uh, the goddess of fertility and sexuality. In, in uh, the Roman world, they called this goddess Diana. The Temple of Artemis was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Uh, you can re read about it and discover this marvelous edifice there. On top of that, Ephesus was also a major center for the worship of the emperor. Uh, six different temples had been built to honor Roman emperors over the course of history. And so uh, the, the population, uh, as I said, was about a quarter of a million people at this time. So it's a very important city, very uh, big bustling, cosmopolitan, culture-shaping city. Um, a center for business and a center uh, where religious pluralism is the, the norm for the people there. Now, Ephesus also became a very important city for the early church. In fact, it was, it was likely the center of Christianity uh, by the time John is writing to them. Daryl Johnson writes this, In that center of business, politics, and religious pluralism emerged one of the most influential churches in the history of Christianity. So those are just some things we know about Ephesus. Uh, now let's turn specifically to the church. We actually know a fair bit about the church in Ephesus. Uh, we can read about its founding and uh, some of its history in the New Testament, in the book of Acts, chapters 18, 19, and 20, uh, particularly. The church was birthed during a brief visit by the Apostle Paul. He was not able to stay, but the church started. He left. He left Aquila and Priscilla there uh, behind him when he left, and he returned not too, uh, too long after, and he actually spent two and a half years in Ephesus, in the church, in that city, teaching and preaching and reasoning with people. Uh, Paul's ministry in Ephesus made a major impact on this uh, key city in the province of Asia. Uh, and not only in, in that city, but beyond. We read this in Acts 19 about the effect of Paul's ministry. All the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. In fact, Paul's ministry there, the ministry of the church, as this church is birthed and begins to grow, is so profound that it begins to really upset some people. And, and we read in, in Acts that Demetrius, who was a silversmith, he and his, 
his colleagues, they made their, their living making little statues of Artemis and snow globes of Artemis and tourists and people came from all over Asia to see Artemis and they were starting to lose business because of the growth of Christianity, because of Paul. And so Demetrius actually stirs up a huge riot. We read about it in Acts. And as a result of that riot, Paul actually has to leave Ephesus. Later, after Paul left, he puts Timothy in charge, and so we can read uh, the letters of 1 and 2 Timothy, which are from, from Paul to Pastor Timothy, who is serving as the leader in the church in Ephesus. According to church tradition, Timothy was put to death by the Romans towards the end of the first century, and after that, John, the Apostle John, the John who is writing the Revelation, who receives this vision and is, is recording it, he became the pastor in Ephesus. In fact, John was the disciple charged with, with caring for the mother of Jesus. And so uh, the mother of Jesus, actually, Mary, was a part of this church for a long time. Likely not living at this point anymore. Can you imagine, though, being a part of this church? I mean, founded by Paul, pastored by Timothy first, then John. Uh, the mother of Jesus is there. Imagine celebrating Christmas Eve with the mother of Jesus in your church. I mean, this is quite the church. Is an important and significant church in, in Christendom at the time. The center of the Christian movement. We learn, though, some things about this church also from the words of Jesus in our text. If you look with me at verse 2, we read this. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Here we encounter some significant words of affirmation, of commendation from the lips of Jesus for this church in Ephesus. First, Jesus says, I know your deeds, your hard work. Now, we're not told any of the specifics of what they are doing, only that they are busy doing it. They are busy working for Jesus. They're busy working for the sake of the church. The church in Ephesus is, is no mere social gathering where people to get, get together, they come just to have their spiritual, uh, spiritual services needs met. This is not a, a, a church that has fallen into that sort of consumer mindset. No, they're an active congregation. In fact, the, word, the phrase, your hard work, actually emphasizes the, the strenuous nature, the exhausting nature of the work they're doing. Jesus affirms, I know your deeds, your hard work. It's good. Jesus affirms that. This church is pushing themselves for the kingdom. They are paying the price of what it means to be committed. Second, Jesus affirms their perseverance. Evidently, some of these believers are facing difficulty, facing challenges, hardships, suffering, opposition of some kind. Now remember, Ephesus is this religiously plural city with this uh, temple to the, the goddess Artemis and, and it, it, this wonder of the world that people would flock to from all over. It has six temples to, uh, to worship the emperors. I mean, this is a pluralistic place. And remember what happened with Paul. His ministry was so effective that some of the artisans were losing money related to those other religions, specifically of Artemis. And so there was this opposition, that, that this riot that led to Paul fleeing. And the, the Christians that stayed behind were being impacted by that. Um, Christianity was not popular in the city. And now Paul, though long dead, that unpopularity of Christianity lingered. And these believers understood what it meant to be hated, 
to be snubbed. Many of them had lost business and lost customers uh, because they were followers of Christ. Probably people go, well, don't go to that shop. Let's boycott them. They're, they're followers of Jesus. They don't support the, the worship of Artemis and the worship of these emperors. Perhaps even some of these Ephesian believers had experienced physical suffering. But, but what we learn here from Jesus' words is that, that in the face of all that the Ephesian believers experienced, they had not denied Christ. And they had persevered. And Jesus' word of commendation is, well done. Third, Jesus affirms their orthodoxy, their faithfulness to the truth of the message of the gospel. You may remember uh, Paul's encounter with the elders of the church of Ephesus in the book of Acts in chapter 20. Uh, Paul is departing. He, he is sailing already and he invites the elders to come and meet him so that he can say farewell. And we read this in Acts 20, his farewell to the Ephesian elders. He says, I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, some will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. What Paul had predicted has come true. There are false teachers who have come and tried to lead people astray. In fact, later on, we speak about, Jesus mentions the Nicolaitans. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. That's a group, and we, we'll come back to them. They're mentioned in another letter, and so we'll focus in on them more specifically, what we can say. But, but what is clear here is that there have been these savage wolves who have come in, false apostles, false teachers who have sought to lead people away to be their disciples. And this church has remained faithful. What did they do when that happened? They, they listened they thought carefully and deeply. They prayed. They discerned. They tested. And then they rejected all that was false. They clung to the truth of the gospel. They, they were orthodox. What is clear is that they have stood against false teachers. They have, they have stood for the truth of the Christian message. And Jesus says, well done. Quite the church this center of Christianity in the Roman Empire, this church that is, is uh, continuing to live in this religiously plural world, actively working diligently hard for the kingdom, holding on to Christ in the face of opposition, rejecting false teaching and, and preserving the truth of the Christian message. What a church. There is much that is good. But this letter, this word from Jesus does not end here. There's more that he has to say. And so we shift our attention from Jesus' words of commendation to Jesus' word of correction and warning. In verse 4 we read this. These words on Jesus' lips. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Jesus here, the description of Jesus is the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Jesus who is present with them in their midst. Daryl Johnson says this, Jesus is like a divine quality control inspector walking around the churches, investigating, scrutinizing every corner of the church's life. Jesus, who is with them, who walks among the seven golden lampstands of the churches. Jesus looks at the church in Ephesus. And he sees a problem. He sees 
that they have forsaken the love they had at first. Now, understand this, that that our text does not explicitly identify the object of that love. So what love is it that they have forsaken? Is it love for God? Perhaps. Certainly throughout the scriptures we encounter texts that speak to uh, uh, the love of God's people uh, being diminished. In Jeremiah 2.2 we read this, I remember the devotion of your youth, how as a bride you loved me and followed me through the wilderness. So certainly this may be speaking of their love for God. And ultimately, we don't have to choose one or the other. But I suspect that what is central here is, in fact, love for one another. Love for, on the horizontal plane. That their love for one another has eroded. Remember Jesus' words to his disciples in John's Gospel. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Love is the central identifying characteristic of the church. Love is the central defining quality characteristic of the people of God. It is what distinguishes the church from other groups. It is what identifies followers of Jesus. Now our love for God overflows in love for one another. So like I said, perhaps we don't have to just narrow in in our view on just one, but I suspect that this love on the horizontal plane is the love specifically that is being addressed here. Jesus confronts the church with the fact that despite the various good things that are true about it, that they are working hard for Him, that they're working hard for the church, that they are holding on to Christ in the face of suffering and opposition, that they are clinging to Christian orthodoxy. Despite those things, they have lost their love. And that, that love is to be central in their life as His people. I want you to listen to these words from John in his first epistle. In 1 John 3.11, we read this, For this is the message you heard from the beginning, we should love one another. These are the words of of John, who has been the pastor in this church. Uh, Chapter 3, verse 14, We know that we have passed from death to life because we love one another. Chapter 3, verse 23, And this is his command, to believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. Very clearly, love for one another in in the church is to characterize their lives, their lives as the disciples of Jesus, our lives as the disciples of Jesus. And the absence of that love is a serious problem. In 1 John 4, again, the words of John, whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. Whoever does not love their brother or sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. The words of the Apostle Paul, the founder of this church, ring in my ears at this point. In in 1 Corinthians 13, If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but I do not have love, I am nothing. There is much 
that is good about the church in Ephesus, but they've lost their first love. And love is to be the defining, central, quality, characteristic of the church, of the people of God, and they've lost it. Mark Buchanan, in his book, that your church is too safe, tells a story about a young woman in his church who was moving to a new city to attend university. Uh, Mark was aware of a church where the word was preached faithfully, and so he encouraged her to go there. So she went one Sunday morning. Here's what she experienced. She arrived and she found a seat up near the front of the sanctuary, and she, she took the seat, and a few minutes later, a, a couple came in, and they just stood over top of her. And f- finally she said, am I sitting in your seat? And they said, yes. So she got up and she moved a few rows back. The next person came in, uh, walked straight up to her and told her straight up, you're in my seat. And so this young lady got up and she moved, this time to the other side of the sanctuary towards the back. She sat down again. Uh, Not that long after, another couple came in and they, they went right in front of her in the row in the pew in front of her and sat down and turned around and just glowered at her. And she said, am, am I in your seat? And they said, yes, this has been our, that's been our seat for 40 years. She got up and she moved to the balcony. And she never returned to that church. Orthodox preaching, the word preached faithfully. And it's somehow a horrific example of the church failing to love despite all that is genuinely good about the church in Ephesus, the absence of love is a critical flaw. It must be corrected. And if it's not corrected, Jesus, the implications of the warning in Jesus in verse 5, if you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, is that if, if this flaw is not corrected, they will in fact cease to be the church. Sobering. The glorified Christ thus addresses this church, this this central and fatal flaw, unflinchingly. He says, consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. Jesus calls the Ephesian Christians to three things. He says, first, consider, remember. Jesus is not calling them to beat themselves up. He's calling them to remember. Consider how far you've fallen. Remember how, when you first came to Christ, how deeply you were in love with Christ and how that love overflowed into love for one another. Remember. Consider how things have changed. He calls them to recognize what is currently true. Secondly, he calls them to repent, to turn from what they are doing, to turn from their current sin, their current failure to love, and to begin, and then thirdly, to do what they, they did before, to do again the things they used to do. Now, that's not spelled out for us, the particulars, but we know what does it look like to love one another. Well, again, returning to John's first epistle, we read this. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for, for our brothers and sisters. The Ephesian believers are to sacrificially love one another, sacrificially care for one another, sacrificially serve one another. 
to, to quote Paul again from his letter to the Philippians, he says, in humility to value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each to the interests of the others. We need to remember, we need to repent, and we need to do again the things we did at first. So what does this mean for us today as readers of this text, as hearers of this text? What does it mean for, for us, those who have ears, to hear hear what the Spirit says to the churches? What is the central, dominating characteristic of our church? Sunrise. What what do people experience when they come and join us for the first time? What do each one of us experience when we gather together, whether in small groups or large groups? Are we, at our core, characterized by love? Now, I don't know about you, but, but as I ask those questions and, and as I hear Jesus' words of rebuke and, and warning, This feels a bit heavy, doesn't it? But here's the thing. Jesus who speaks this word of correction, this word of rebuke and warning, is the same Jesus who we encounter in Revelation 1-5, who loves us and has freed us from our sins by His blood. Again, as John writes in his first epistle, we love because He first loved us. We are, this is, it is as we see the love of Jesus for us, as we see the way Jesus loved us, giving his life for us, uh, laying down his life, dying on the cross, paying the penalty for my sin and for yours, willingly, lovingly, graciously going to the cross, suffering what I deserve, suffering what you deserve, so that through faith in him we might be forgiven, cleansed, purified, that we might be clothed with his perfection, that we would get credit for his perfect obedience. It is when we look to Jesus, the lamb who was slain, that our lives are transformed, that obedience begins to grow. See, Christian obedience is necessarily rooted in the finished work of Jesus, anchored to the gospel. It is as the gospel saturates our heart, the good news of what Christ has done for us, as that takes hold of our heart, that our lives are gospelized, they're, they're transformed, that we, we respond with, with a growing love for Christ and a love that overflows to one another. John Stott writes this, the cross is the blazing fire at which the flame of our love is kindled. The cross is the blazing fire at which the flame of our love is kindled. It is absolutely true, hear this, that we are not saved by good works, that we are not saved by our love for God or for one another. We see that proclaimed clearly in the, uh, the epistle to the Ephesians. For it is by grace you've been saved, not by works. But as Paul continues in Ephesians 2.10, we read this, For we are God's handiwork created in Christ, Jesus, in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. So here's what we need to understand. That we are saved by grace apart from works, but we're saved by grace and we're saved... Uh, We're not saved by good works, but we are saved for good works. That is, we are saved by grace, uh, by Christ, apart from works, in order that we might uh, grow in obedience, that we might do these good works prepared in advance for God to do. God saves us through Christ, 
And as we see Christ, as we see the glory, this gift of salvation and redemption that is ours through faith in Him, our lives are transformed and we respond with love for others. So yes, we are called, brothers and sisters, we are called to love one another. Not in order to be saved, but because we have been saved by Christ who loves us, who demonstrated His love in giving His life for us. Love for one another is not motivated by fear. It is rather motivated by grateful joy for all that Christ has done for you and done for me. For motivated by Christ's great love for us. And when we fail, it's because we've taken our eyes off of Christ and we need to return our eyes to Christ and we need to repent. Jesus calls the, the Ephesian church to repent. Consider how far you've fallen, reflect on what is true in this moment, repent, that is, turn from it, turn back to me, and do again the things you did at first. See, repentance, brothers and sisters, is not something we do once. It's not something that simply stands as the, the, the entrance into the Christian life that, well, I repented then, and now I'm a believer. No, repentance is part of our daily, ongoing walk with Jesus. Continually, the Spirit will bring things to mind that need to be corrected, and we repent, we turn from them back to Christ. We fix our eyes on Christ, the love of Christ, the grace of Christ, and as we do that, He changes us. And we love again. We, we do again the things we did at first, not in order to be saved, but because we are saved amazingly by Christ's love and grace. And we, as we love others, as we learn to love others, again, we are always resting and rejoicing in His finished work on the cross. Remember the beatitude, the blessing that we encountered in Revelation 1, the opening verses where we read, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and keep it. Take to heart what is written in it. As this first letter, the letter to the church in Ephesus, comes to a close, we hear uh, that, that call to hear rings loudly again. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Hearing is more than simply an auditory experience. We are to hear, to receive, to take to heart, and to respond rightly, to respond in obedience. And here we recognize that the central characteristic of our lives as disciples of Jesus, the central quality of what it means to be the church is to be a community of love. A community where the love for Christ and love for one another is overflowing. That that is the dominant, central, critical quality of the church. And then here we come to this promise on the lips of Jesus. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This, of course, many of you will recognize, is an allusion to Genesis 2 and 3. That's where the tree of life is first encountered in the pages of Scripture. And the tree of life, because of sin, humanity is driven from the garden, and God places an angel at the entrance to the garden with a flaming sword flashing back and forth to keep them away from the tree of life. And here, Jesus' promise is that to those who are victorious, He, he has opened the way to the tree of life. In the paradise of God, we will encounter the tree of life at the end of the Revelation. In Revelation 22, the tree of life is there in the city, in the new Jerusalem. Humanity is barred because of sin from this, but it is opened up through Christ. 
to all those who believe, all those who put their faith in him, all those who are victorious by putting their faith in the one who is the lamb who was slain. Now through faith that has been opened up to us. Brothers and sisters, I want to call you to listen to the words of Christ. Those who are with us this morning who do not know Jesus yet, I invite you to ask Jesus to give you ears to hear, that you might hear this invitation to give yourself to Him, to respond to His great love for you, and that you would allow His love for you to transform you, fill your heart with love for Him and love for others, that you would become part of His people who are to be characterized by love. Let's close with a word of prayer. Jesus, we thank You for these words. They are hard words, convicting words. But Jesus, we rest in Your finished work. You are the one who loves us and by whose blood we have been forgiven. And so Jesus, may we be faithful listeners and by the power of your Spirit in us, may we respond by repenting and returning, re-engaging, doing again the things we did at first. Lord, where, where we need to be convicted, whether it's in this area of diminished love or in other areas, Lord, we pray, show us our errors. Correct us, Jesus. Not in order that we might get right with you, but because of your love for us, because of the gospel at work in our hearts. And Jesus, I pray this morning that, that as we hear this letter, as these words ring in our ears as we go from here, Lord, that you would shape us to be a community of love. Lord, that those who visit us would walk away feeling your love, not because we're something special, Lord, but because you are at work in us. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. said earlier that we are going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And so just a few words of instruction. I trust that, the, that you have some elements uh, to participate where you're at. Uh, just a word again. If you are with us this morning and you are not a follower of Jesus, I invite you simply to, to watch, to sit with us. Martin's going to uh, play and sing uh, while we do this. And so just continue to be with us as we wrap up in a couple minutes. Uh, this is what God invites uh, His people to do. Uh, to remember Christ, to remember uh, all that Christ has done for us. Uh, those of you who are believers, I invite you in your uh, own setting. Some of you I know are alone. Some of you are in family groups or other small groups. I invite you just to prepare to share together. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it and said, this is my body, which is given for you. As often as you take this, uh, do so in memory of me. In the same way, after they had eaten, after the meal, they, he took the cup and said, this cup is the cup of the new covenant and my blood poured out for you. As often as you drink of it, do so in remembrance of me. These elements, these are symbols that remind us of Christ's death for us. His body given for us. His blood shed for us. As we partake, let's do so with grateful, thankful hearts to Jesus, our Lord, our Redeemer, our Savior, our King. Amen.
Yeah.